Hello there, and welcome to the Amateur Historian Podcast. Once again, so sorry this episode's coming out almost a month late. Um, I just got a new job with the company that I work for, and grad school has really been keeping me slash consuming all of my time. So for this episode, for this week, I wanted to give you a taste of what I am currently learning about. And I wanted to give you a few updates about how the podcast is doing so far and a sneak peek into the next few episodes that we are looking forward to and that I'm currently researching and getting a couple little special guests penciled in. So without further ado, let's get into the episode and it's great to be back. All right, first off, we hit over a hundred listens. Woot woot! So thank you to you, the listener, for hearing me blabble about history, not say any names right, mispronounce names you know, about history and politics and all the other factors that help give us a better historical perspective. So all of you get a little bit of a shout out. The second one goes out to our international listeners. We had our first listeners from Poland and Australia. So welcome to you all listening from Poland and Australia, which leads me into the sneak peeks and the behind the curtain projects that I'm currently working on. First, we will have an episode on the Polish resistance to Nazi occupation during World War II, particularly in Warsaw, is what we'll be looking at. The Polish resistance is always highly talked about in World War II, and I wanted to learn more about it. So please, to my Polish listeners, if you have any insights or any stories or any sources, you can email them to me at the Amateur Historian Podcast at gmail.com. So you can be included in the show. It'd be great to have you and your insights. I also wanted to see if the Jewish revolt in the city during World War II is included during the Warsaw Resistance movement and see if they worked together or not. So keep your ears open for that one. It's on the schedule, trust me. And to my Australian viewers, I would love to revisit your camel problem that we talked about in an earlier episode on how camels got to Australia and how they caused a lot of economic damage. And I would love to be able to do that. Or... The World War II engagements between the Japanese Navy and the Australian Navy or the British Royal Navy, you can debate which one. But I want to talk about Australia's tactics and their defenses and what they were afraid of during World War II from the Japanese. So I think that would be a really fun episode. But once again, please email me and tell me something that you find fascinating about your own history or your culture that you would like me to learn about that I can share with everybody else. I would love to hear from you all. We also have some upcoming episodes on guns, on women, on culture, and a few others, but I must be mysterious here because I don't want to spoil the surprise, but I really can't wait for those episodes, and all three of them will have special guests, which I'm also really excited about. And I hope you're excited about them yourselves, because we get guest speakers, and it's going to be a really amazing time. But all right, now it's time to get into the episode itself and what I wanted to share. So I'm currently taking a course about race, gender, and migration. And this class is being taught by Dr. Daniel Santana, a professor at Arizona State University. So I'm trying to get into ASU right now. The class overall is very fascinating and quite interesting and is especially important in our modern day context and our historical context. The focus of the class is on, of course, race, gender, and migration. We have been first talking about the study of migration and immigration, but why? Why would we want to study immigration and migration? What's so important about it? Well, it can tell us a lot about history and different events happening in the world and past decisions that led people to 
immigrate from their own countries to other countries or migrate to countries for work or many other examples. A couple of those examples would be immigrants coming from Latin America to the United States, immigrants from Africa and the Arabian Peninsula to Europe, and many Europeans moving from Europe to the United States, just to name a few examples. Of course, when we talk about immigration and where they are going, we know this can be very different for many different people, and there can be many different factors to why people immigrate or migrate. But one of these areas that we have been focusing in on and something I've been finding more and more interesting is how culture and economics and identity are changing the way we are viewing masculinity and femininity, not just in the immigrant communities, but also in the countries that they are immigrating to and from. And I think that's really cool that we're talking about masculinities, femininities, sexuality, men's and women's roles and family units or by themselves. It's just overall, I've been finding it quite fascinating. But specifically, the first week of class, we have been discussing the actual studies of immigration and the schools of thought behind the studies of immigration. There was an article that's called New Growth on Old Vines, The State of the Field, The Social History of Immigration to and Ethnicity in the United States. It's from a, the Journal of American Ethnic History number 18. Oh boy. Fair warning, historians love to get really, really fancy with their names. Yes, I know it's difficult and I know how academic articles and books and papers are written by historians and we need to use them. You don't even want to look at the reference pages for any of those sources. It can be a little overwhelming with the sheer amount of information and rabbit holes that you can go down to, but also really fun. Anyway, the two schools of thought in regards to immigration are the Chicago School of Sociology and the legend view. So the School of Chicago views the study of immigration from more of a statistical, factual, and theoretical point of view. And they kind of are the first school and the major thought and group to grapple with immigration and ethnicity. They're the ones who first kind of started to come up with these ideas on how to research immigration. And now in particular, in the field of immigration, botanical metaphors are used very heavily. And the School of Chicago used botanical metaphors in a very literal sense. Roderick D. McKenzie and Ernest W. Burgess borrowed from studies of plant ecology to provide, in effect, metaphorical models for the city and residents. The city, they argued in their ecological approach to the study of human community, resembled a vast social organism which digested peoples and cultures as it grew. From this fact, they argue that the, quote, disorder spawned from the introduction of new elements to the system, that is, urban migrants. And this was not pathological, but in fact, normal. The city was thus portrayed as an organism of invasion and succession, and its growth was a metabolic process in which mobile migrating groups entered the city and invading waves, each succeeding the previous with respect to occupational roles and geographic residency patterns. And some botanical metaphors underlay the whole structure of modernization. Overall, kind of to break that down is they are very lytical and they believe that facts and figures are really important. And one group of people comes in to a, an ecosystem or this city forest and they change it. And that's kind of the basic view of the Chicago School of Sociology. Well, the bludgeon view wanted to look more into the stories of immigrants to take their experiences and their stories to paint a bigger picture of immigration. Bludgeon and had an understanding of the basic elements, the quote, grassroots of our daily life and civilization. 
and these were central to the appreciation of the larger process. What is that larger process? That's immigration. Quote, grassroots theory was a path to, quote, social awareness, that the natural sciences up to that point had been more successful than social sciences in addressing in regards to immigration. Yet it would be followed by an attention to the human rather than the statistical facts of immigration. So we see that this view of school is talking about the immigrant experience, what they had, what they went through, their stories. That's more important than the facts and figures and statistics, which you can make an argument for both sides. Some people argue facts are way more important. Other people argue that stories are more important. We as historians, it's our job to take the facts and the stories and put them together into a cohesive unit for an overall understanding. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, legend wanted to view specific botanical points to provide clues about the whole process of immigration. A lot of this use was talking about, you know, if we move one plant from here to this location, you know, let's say from the front of your yard to the back of your yard, not too much of a change. But if we move a plant from one side of the Atlantic Ocean to the other side of the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean to the other side of the Pacific Ocean, it's a big change for a plant. And they want to talk about the story of how that plant got from one place to the other or how an immigrant got from their home country to a new country. And that's very important for the study of immigration. And yes, I understand that plants are used very heavily, are used, and that, yes, I understand that plants are heavily used in regards to the study of immigration, but it's a very good way to use metaphors and botanical metaphors in particular to talk about immigration. Hmm, maybe I should do an episode on how plants have affected culture or the new environments that they are introduced to with human development. Wait, no, no, back on track. See, we were talking about rabbit holes earlier and all this research. Bring yourself back in. All right, we will do some research on that idea though later. We also had to talk about the failures of these two schools of thought and what they missed. And obviously, I mentioned a little earlier, many of our classmates and I came to the conclusion that the studies were heavily biased in the early stages of studying immigration. A hugely disproportionate area of study was just on European immigration without any regards to other groups was blatantly racist in a lot of other regards and didn't factor in a lot of different things that people probably should have. And we discussed how immigration studies need to include more immigrants themselves, many different forms of immigrants. We need to have immigrant stories and their voices shared to the historical record and in the field of migration studies itself. And we need to make sure that we continue to expand on different fields that can affect immigration and possibly policy. We need to look at law, we need to look at culture, we need to look at masculinity, we need to look at femininity, we need to look at the environment, we need to look at economic situations, we need to look at all these different things in order to paint a clearer picture on what immigration is and to overall look at the vast forest of immigration and not just the one tree. Alright, so the second week of class, we talked very heavily about how gender affects migration and how migration affects gender. The differences between men immigrating and migrating and women immigrating and migrating and how it changes cultural norms not only within families but also where they come from but also the culture that of the group they are assimilating into we have been discussing how culture can affect and change the definitions of masculinity that men and women have as immigrants and their femininity as well by changing conditions in economics culture 
language, religion, and a whole list of other factors. We see the style of laws that are passed are based on that new country's views on immigrants as well. We can see examples of immigrant women feeling more autonomous and in control when they are the breadwinners of the family. We can see men move into more domestic roles while their wives are at work in some cases. We can also see more traditional roles of men going to work and the women staying at home taking care of the family. But the fact that we can see different immigrants in different families and communities having different experiences affects gender norms and can change people's views, especially immigrants' views, on masculinity and femininity. And it's quite fascinating and interesting. And I just want to bring up really quick the laws that are being passed by that home's countries is their view on immigrants and do they accept immigrants, do they not accept immigrants. And culturally, the sense of those people also get to show how they feel about masculinity and femininity by these laws. And it's just so fascinating that this is what I'm learning, and I think it's really cool, which is why I'm sharing it with you. The book that we read on this topic is actually called Gender and Migration by Dr. Caroline Braytel. The way the book is broken up helps to not only give me and many students a better insight into gender and migration, but also make sure it's not just about immigration, but also migration, as there is a difference between immigration and migration. Many different migrants cross borders to work and return to their home countries after their work is done every day. And we can see that in many different circumstances. Immigrants are moving from one country to another, but migrants are moving around constantly. And there's other really big differences between the two. But I want to emphasize that they are different ideas, but they both play a crucial and important role in the studies of immigration. The contents of the book, Gender and Migration, can overall kind of be broken down into a couple different sections and each section talks about a different topic or what we'll, we'll continue with plant analogies each section helps to bring in a little individual plant into the whole garden that is the study of immigration first chapter talks about the demography of u.s immigration and immigration to non-us countries and this changes over time depending on what in the world is happening and other economic factors political factors and even environmental factors we mentioned that earlier it also talks about immigrants coming from Asia, Africa, Europe, and Latin America, and their distinct differences, and their acceptance into different countries. The second chapter dealt with law, politics, citizenship, and political practices. We were discussing how laws are written that target immigrants groups, that target immigrants in either positive or negative ways. We can look back at the Chinese we can look back at the Chinese Exclusion Act for example, as a bad case, or we can look at the case where Colombians were letting in hundreds of thousands of Venezuelan refugees fleeing economic and political turmoil as a positive example, or the EU, the European Union, welcoming immigrants in the early stages of the Arab Spring back in the early 2010s and the Venezuelan refugees in the mid-2010s. We can also look at the economic and labor markets of the world, which was the next chapter of the book and why immigrants move to different countries. Easy examples of this are farm workers in Europe moving to cities to work in factories, as an example of migration, or if a country desires labor, allowing more immigrants into a country. We also get to see how immigrants' families and culture dynamics change as the family united or separated families, or just a man or a woman immigrate. It shows us how 
gender roles and how economics and these pressures change how people feel about immigrants and themselves. And each of the sections in the book builds on top of each other and connects them all together. And it is so important that this book was written and it just gives a lot of key insights. All right, and this last week that we did, we are finishing up by doing a discussion about race, sexuality, and law in North America, particularly in the West Coast is what we're looking at, and the West Coast of the United States, Mexico, and Canada. There is a book that we read that is called Stranger Intimacy, and it is written by Diane Shaw. He wrote this book called Stranger Intimacy, and I'm going to refer to him as Shaw because it's the last name. So Shaw's book, Stranger Intimacy, is broken up by three chapters with very different sections within the chapters themselves. The first section talks about capitalism and migration of Asian Americans to the United States and how they built the infrastructure of the West Coast. There's even a map that shows the common routes that immigrants would take to get into the United States and Canada, which is really fascinating. It also shows us some interesting facts about early migration, especially within Asian communities. For example, in 1901, East Asians accounted for almost 11% of the overall population of British Columbia, but that portion declined to around 7% in subsequent decades. Shaw also mentions that they desired the rapid development of capital investors and the recruiting of new groups of mobile labor that could follow the labor-intensive and demanding industries the capitalists had invested in, particularly in mining and railroad tracks. And this is referencing that Asian communities and immigrants were being put into fields that would help benefit and promote capitalist ventures and investments and money that white people and white industry owners were bringing. And we can see that this actually caused a little bit of a rift in communities that Asian immigrants were moving to and through. We can see that there was mobs and violence broke out between white communities and those of Asian communities as they would move with the railroads and the mining opportunities. This is actually mentioned several times in Stranger Intimacy, which I think, you know, you're competing for jobs, you're competing for work that's really hard labor intensive and people are dying out here doing this really hard work. So you can see also why there's all this stress and anxiety. The second section talked about laws hampering and discriminating against Asian Americans and trying to establish legitimacy within their communities and to make sure that their families are safe in the United States. Shaw cites this quote to show how racism against the Asian communities was very bad in particular. Quote, two Southern states, Virginia in 1924 and Georgia in 1927, specifically prohibited marriages to Asiatic Indians and white persons. End quote. It's interesting that many Americans today do not think racism against the Asian community is a problem, yet we are seeing in our modern day and in our past racism, laws, and barriers being put up to hamper Asian communities, and it's a continuing ongoing struggle. And finally, the third and concluding section talked about membership and nation states, the regulations of intimacy and Asian Americans moving from strangers in a foreign country to actual American citizens. The modern example that I can think of in the historical standard is the idea that, quote, some Asian people are, quote, white passing, or that they get a pass because they provide an economic benefit to the country and to business, so they get a, quote, pass. The United States was not deporting people because they needed workers and men to fight in World War II. They literally were only keeping Asian Americans around and Asian people and not deporting them was because we were at war and they were needed for a benefit to the United States. 
What if the United States wasn't at war in World War II? Would many of those minorities and Asian communities be forced back to their home countries? Would they be allowed to stay? You know, what do you kind of think? Has it been a slow process for Asian communities to slowly get accepted and considered Americans? Are they considered Americans by the broad speck of people, or are they still considered Asians and other? The context for that is, how do you think Americans viewed Asian immigrants and Asian people in particular, you know, did many of them consider them still foreigners or did many of them consider them to be actual Americans? Especially because at this time we were at war with Japan and we did build concentration camps because we didn't trust Japanese citizens and we thought they would spy on us. Let me know what you think. I want to investigate that idea a little bit further in a different episode. We don't have time for that today. With all of this in mind, I still have a lot to learn about the study of immigration. I still have a bunch to learn. I still have a couple more weeks of school. But overall, the topic of immigration itself is fascinating and very important. Many of us have experienced immigration in our lives, and many of us have family or friends or ancestors that have migrated or immigrated. By studying immigration, we can look into our own past and make predictions about how people will migrate in the future and how they are going to move now and why. And those are all very important issues that we need to address in our modern day countries. Whew, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You found it interesting to listen to. I know it's a little bit shorter and it's a little bit different than what I normally do because I'm talking about school and what we're learning. But nevertheless, I still really wanted to share with you what I am learning. Also, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and your family. I wanted to continue making these episodes for y'all, and I want to share it with as many people as possible. That's why these episodes will be coming out every two weeks to every month. It just kind of depends on how much research I have to do, and school, and work, and all these different factors. And I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave me a little review while you're at it, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts or anywhere where you listen to your podcasts. I'm going to start reading reviews that are posted, and leave your name, and whatever you want to say. But the best way to get in touch with me is by email. My email is theamateurhistorianpodcast at gmail.com. That's the easiest way you can find me. You can also follow me on Twitter at Sean underscore Kears or my Instagram, which is at Running Olaf. You can also follow me on Twitch. I do Twitch streaming at twitch.tv slash amateurgaming36. Come see me laugh, talk, come see me laugh, talk about random topics, rage with a bunch of my wonderful friends, especially on Sunday. Sunday night, we typically do an Alphabet Mafia stream, and it's super, super fun. So I'd love to see you out there. Once again, this podcast is available anywhere you listen. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it, we're there. Next week, I will be talking about something to do with guns. Ooh, I'm so excited. It's going to be really, really cool. I'm really hyped and looking forward to this episode in particular because we have a guest speaker coming. So keep those notifications on so you can see when I go live with this next episode. Don't forget, it's never too late to learn something new. Thanks for listening, and I will see you all in a little bit. Good day, good evening, good night. We'll see you later.